I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. Okay, so we're going to be in Mark chapter 6. That's where we're going to start. Mark chapter 6, verse 1. This is the Mark series, part 18. Jesus is rejected in his hometown of Nazareth. That's like the scene, the whole scene that we're in here in verses 1 through 6. Rejected by his family and rejected by those who know him well. This is kind of the condition. And we're going to learn some strategies for outreach, actually, from what we learn in this passage. Um, I think a problem with American Christianity that was a problem with their religious views in Nazareth. Also, some internet-level misinformation about Nazareth not existing. We'll talk about that as well. Some apologetic stuff. We're going to get into the concept of the perpetual virginity of Mary and how scripture weighs in on that because I do think this passage weighs in on that. And at some point, Mark, I wanted to unpack that a bit. And um, so it's going to be kind of a variety of things today. I wouldn't know how, I don't even know how I'm going to title this study, (laughs) what I can put on a thumbnail that gives people an idea what this is about because there's quite a wide variety. So that's just how it's going to be, a bit bit eclectic, but we're going to get it all from the scripture, from the passage, and try to think biblically about this stuff. So Mark chapter 6, verse 1, let's read these first six verses and gather the info. It says, Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him and such miracles as these performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except that he had laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief and he was going around the villages teaching. So really short, simple passage. Just there's the whole thing. You can take it all in real easy. But let's work through it now more thoughtfully, more carefully. And we'll answer those kind of apologetic and theological questions as well. So verse 1. Jesus went out from there and came to his hometown into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. Uh, Nazareth is his hometown in the sense that Jesus grew up there. Not that he was born there, born in Bethlehem, but he grew up and lived in Nazareth for his the majority of his life. So that's his hometown. So this is like a homecoming, right? This is like coming back to visit home after you've been gone for a while, but this is a totally different kind of homecoming. This is like something you've never experienced in your homecomings because they know Jesus, but they know him as someone very different than who he is being revealed as right now. They don't know Jesus as a miracle worker. They don't know Jesus as a teacher, let alone bringing this sort of new teaching and new understanding and teaching with authority and doing all this kind of stuff. And he has these disciples following him when he comes back home. And, you know, you'd you be like, I know that he's, he's the carpenter, right? You know, and here he's coming with these disciples and they're like maybe spreading rumors about him. And maybe you've heard rumors about him. And you've heard that he's doing all these miracles and you're like, no, come on. I know him. He doesn't do any of this kind of stuff. So um, I think that perhaps the healings, the exorcisms, and the teachings of Jesus, those are like the three things Mark focuses on, healings, exorcisms, and teachings of Jesus, as well as a couple other miracles, but in general, it's those things. Um, the, uh, those things, those rumors had probably reached Nazareth, and we have good reason to think so. I'll get into that a little bit later. Um, but now let's talk a little bit about this city, Nazareth, or this town. You can't call it a city. It's really not. It was probably pretty small, a small number of people back then that lived in Nazareth. But this has led some to say that Nazareth simply didn't exist at all. 
and that the people who were writing the Bible much, much later, now you have to, you have to come back down like the history of you know people criticizing the Bible here. Go back a couple hundred years, and they were saying that the Gospels were written like 200 years after Jesus's life. They were like late second century, maybe maybe even after that, some people would say, right? And so the claim is Nazareth existed when the Gospels were supposedly written, you know, 150, 200 years later, but it didn't exist when Jesus was really alive. And so they take this as evidence that they're just making stuff up about Jesus, right? They're just fabricating stories. Now, this um, really false view has been propagated by a guy named Rene Salm. Rene Salm, who wrote the book, The Myth of Nazareth, The Invented Town of Jesus. And for one thing, we know for sure all of the Gospels were written in the first century. First century, not way later. Um, And so the whole theory breaks apart already. But here's some of the things that he claimed. He claimed that there were artifacts from there, um, from Nazareth that we have found, but they date to later, to like the Byzantine period or something. They were just some much later period of time. They were around during the Council of Nicaea. Nazareth was there, but not during Jesus' time. It's a later city. And this kind of content, his complaints about the existence of Nazareth, it's reproduced on atheist.org. These are the websites I found it on this week as I was studying. I'm like, I wonder where I'll find it, right? It's atheist.org, rationalewiki.org, which is an atheist um, you know, website, and jesusneverexisted.com which is your source for good history. <laughs> um, and so, in other words, though, though this stuff is not, gen- as far as I know, promoted by scholarship and that kind of thing, it's, that's not so much the case. It is propagated on the internet. And the truth is that weird stuff on the internet reaches more people than scholars reach on a daily basis. And so I thought it'd be cool to talk about it. So here's a response. I'm not going to get all into all the details because it's boring. But here's a response from Israeli archaeologist who did studies in Nazareth. He's part of the Israeli Antiquities Department. His name is Yehuda Rapuano. You can look him up online, R-A-P-U-A-N-O. Yehuda Rapuano. And he says this, quote, and he took Salm's comments, Rene Salm, who's the source for all these atheist claims about Nazareth. And he says the following, Salm's personal evaluation of the pottery, which he rehearses from his book, The Nazareth Myth, reveals his lack of expertise in the area, as well as his lack of serious research in the sources. By ignoring or dismissing solid ceramic, numismatic, and literary evidence for Nazareth's existence during the late Hellenistic and early Roman period, around the time of Jesus, it would appear that the analysis which René Salm includes in his review and his recent book must, in itself, be regulated to the realm of myth. So it's the myth of the myth of Nazareth, is what he's saying, effectively. And that was in the Bulletin of Anglo-Israel Archaeological Society, Volume 26, published in 2008, page 107 and 108, just because every once in a while someone's like, quote your sources, Mike! And I'm like, oh, sorry, I remember to quote my sources. <laughs> you couldn't be bothered to look it up. Um, I'm just, that's a joke, sort of. All right, verse 2, <laughs> verse 2, Mark 6, verse 2. When the Sabbath came... He began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what was this? what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And I tried to actually emphasize the him. They're, they constantly refer, this guy, these things. This guy, these things, right? This guy in the teaching. This guy, the wisdom. This guy in miracles? What? This guy? That's the emphasis. It's this this guy. That's the idea. So this is happening here in the synagogue. And 
if as a young Christian, first starting to read the word and learn about scriptures, I thought synagogue and temple were the same thing. And so when I read in scripture that he visited the synagogue, I just figured they had this big temple like in every city. Synagogue is not the temple, right? The temple is where the sacrifices take place. It's where the priests do their work. That's what the temple is. It's, a, it's one location in all the land of Israel, and it's one of a kind. Nothing like it. The synagogue is a different thing altogether. The synagogue is whether we gather together, and that's what the word means, synagogue, gather together. That's what it is, gather together. And so the synagogue is that location. They would meet on the Sabbath, but they would also meet on the, that which is the seventh day of the week, Saturday, or Friday at sundown. That's because they would see the beginning of the day at sundown. So their Sabbath or Saturday would be Friday night. That was when it would begin. And they would also meet on the second and the fifth days of the week for worship. But when they met on the Sabbath, which seems to be what's happening right here in Mark, they meet on the Sabbath. Here's what they would do according to the Mishnah, ancient Jewish source here. They would read a statement of faith. This is like reading the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind. They would read the Shema, and they would quote basically from Deuteronomy and Numbers, just reading sort of a statement of faith to begin the service. Then they would do a scripture reading. After the scripture reading, they would have an interpretation, potentially have an interpretation, especially later on, because it was to help those who were present who didn't know the Hebrew. So as Hebrew was waning, they might help translate for people who had knew Aramaic but not Hebrew, or they might help for maybe people who knew Greek but not Hebrew. So it would offer an interpretation, not like a hermeneutics interpretation, but a linguistic interpretation. And then after that, they would do the address. They would do the address. And the address, for the address, the, the speaking, the speech part, anyone who was suitably qualified was allowed to do this. Anybody who was suitably qualified. And so you, you didn't have to be like, go to school for X number of years or something quite like that. But you had to have some kind of qualification. Well, Jesus has now been teaching in di- different synagogues and he has disciples following him and he's done miracles, he's done all this stuff. So they're open to him teaching. And he actually comes and now he's teaching in a synagogue where probably for his whole life he never has. And maybe he did the reading, maybe he did something else, but he didn't actually teach. So Jesus teaches now. And it's an acceptable place to do it. This is something I, I've, I've noticed in the scripture is that they would strategically go to the synagogues. And this was like, the Jews are all gathered together. This is a town full of Jewish people, right? And they're gathered together all in the synagogue. And here's a great chance to reach all of them with the message of Christ. So he gets up and he shares. This was Jesus' style. He would always teach in the synagogue. He also taught like randomly in other locations, you know, but he would teach in the synagogues in particular. And Apollos did this too. In Acts chapter 18, we read about a guy named Apollos, who he gets saved, right? He hears about Christ. He puts his faith and trust in Christ. Next thing he does is he goes into the synagogue, because he's Jewish, and he just starts teaching them, giving addresses about how Jesus is the Messiah of the Old Testament. But we also see it in Paul. Paul did it too. As soon as Paul got saved, he's preaching in the synagogue. Let me read it to you, Acts 9.20. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, plural, right? He would go to various synagogues and his proclamation was, he is the son of God. Jesus is the son of God. So what do we learn from this? Jesus does it. Apollos does it. Paul does it. Various people who have some qualification where the, um, the synagogue would allow them to teach, they take advantage of it and they do it. In fact, with Paul, it was a habit. Throughout the book of Acts, we see it over and over again. Whenever he goes to Newtown, he teaches in the synagogue first. First thing he does, he teaches in the synagogue, finds that where's the synagogue, goes there and starts sharing about Jesus. Maybe they kick him out, maybe they don't, you know, but he teaches in the synagogue. Here's my application when I see Jesus doing it, Paul is doing it, Paul doing it throughout the scripture. I say that 
the synagogue is the appropriate and expected place where religious discussion happens. And they're like, how could I not go and teach there? And where is that place today? That's the question I've asked myself quite a while ago. Because I was like, man, I go to the mall and I'm trying to hand out tracts and share with people. And if you ask people, they're probably thinking, this is not the appropriate and expected place for this kind of conversation to happen, you know. But there are certain places, and if you think about it in, in your life, where it's appropriate and expected. Where it's at least tolerated more. And, I th- and I'm not saying we don't preach the gospel everywhere. But I'm saying we should definitely take advantage of those locations. We should highlight those. So this might be a free speech area on a campus. This might be in a class where religious discussion is expected. And you could say, well, how could I not bring the truth of Christ into that environment? So when you, when you find that place, go for it. And to me, I thought, well, it's the internet. Everybody argues about everything on the internet. And here's, a, here's an opportunity we have on our various, whether it's social media or you name it. Now, it's true that some of the older generation, they think that it's inappropriate to put, say, on Facebook or something, a comment about God or politics or Jesus or something like that. Um, but I think that that's more just that generation because they were sort of taught that you shouldn't ever talk about that stuff anywhere. You guys remember that, right? Don't talk about religion, politics, or anything important. <laughs> and that's how we'll be friends. <laughs> I don't know what that friendship is based on. We can't talk about what's valuable to us. But, um, but yeah, it seems to me that gracious and, and loving, open discussion about the truth of Christianity we have this huge open door with the internet and we should take advantage of it while we can. Now, it's true that they later got kicked out of the synagogues and they couldn't do it anymore. But when they could, they did it. And they did it till they couldn't. And often we're too intimidated to share the truth of Christ on social media or on whatever platform. And we kick ourselves out of the synagogue. Right? You don't have to kick me out. I'll just kick myself right out. Like, I won't even bother saying anything because you might get mad. And, yeah. How can we not? How can we not, right? This, the opportunities there, it, it's kind of like the synagogue of, of the day, in a sense. So find those places. Use it while it's there. If you get kicked out, go somewhere else. That's my thought. That's my thought. Um, go for it. Okay, now let's look at their response and let's analyze this. In verse 2b, the second part here, verse 2, it says, The many listeners, they were astonished. And I'll emphasize this like I did in the original reading here. Uh, where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So they knew Jesus, but they didn't know Jesus. This seems like a common thing. A lot of people know Jesus, but don't know Jesus. Right? They know of him, they know about him, but they don't really know him. They don't really get him. And there's the things they, they highlight. They, they highlight his wisdom. And if you read that, you're going like, what does it mean, this wisdom given to him? What were they thinking? They're probably referring to his, his oral teachings, the stuff he's proclaiming. Remember, he taught like no one else, and he didn't teach like their scribes. He's not repeating the stuff that they're all telling each other in their circles of, of preachers, right, the rabbis. He's not just repeating their stuff. He's coming out and saying, this is what it is, this is what it means. And it's like, well, where did you get this? Where is this teaching coming from? So they're like, what is up with this wisdom? They also want to know about the miracles. Now, I'm not sure if these miracles are in reference to ones they hear about because Jesus had done miracles elsewhere and the rumors came to Nazareth, or if they're miracles he's done in Nazareth, because we find out later he did do a few miracles in Nazareth. We just don't know if he did them before the synagogue teaching or after the synagogue teaching. We just, I don't, it doesn't tell us that. So they could be either way. 
What this tells us, though, is that Jesus was not known for miracles amongst those he grew up with. Why is that important? Because the later Gnostic texts, these are, these are texts written by heretics, basically, trying to, early cults, early cult groups, trying to bring Christians into their weird beliefs by making a fake version of Jesus that fits their weird beliefs and saying, ha, huh, see, your Jesus agrees with us. Sound familiar? And so... Um, so the Gnostic texts, what they'll do, these later second century false gospels effectively, is they sometimes have these stories of Jesus as a child, as like a little infant doing all these miracles. So one of them, the infancy gospel of Thomas, if I remember correctly, has Jesus playing in the mud and in the mud he forms birds out of the mud and they fly away and stuff. And then he has water gathered together so he can make mud, so he had water. And some kid comes up and he like, you know, like releases the water. He like breaks the little dam, the little mud dam, and the water starts pouring out. And Jesus looks at him and says something to the effect of, you little weasel, you know, like, why, why'd you do that? And kills the kid, right? And so Jesus is like five years old in this story, by the way. So five-year-old Jesus is using miracles to terrorize people throughout this text, right? In the text, people try to teach him the alphabet and he terrorizes them. Like he's ruining their lives. Finally, someone from the village comes to Joseph, Jesus's, you know, uh, adopted dad. And he says, he says, uh, Joseph, you have to leave or else teach him to bless people instead of cursing people. And I'm like, you don't, you don't need a scholar to tell you this is not Jesus, right? This is not the real Jesus. You just read these texts and you're like, yeah, obviously some weirdo wrote this and it continued to just get spread. Although hardly anybody in the early centuries used it. It did exist. Um, why is that interesting? Because it just shows like this is the real story. Christ, Jesus was not known for miracles or teachings until after the baptism by John. And then he like took the veil off, so to speak, and he started doing all this stuff. And it shocked even those who knew him as he was growing up. It just speaks to, I think, the historicity. This is just kind of how it really happened. But let's look at the reasons they reject Jesus. Um, they give a few reasons. One of them is, isn't this the carpenter? And you're like, well, how is that a reason to reject him? Isn't this the carpenter? Well, back then, if you were a carpenter, that's like all you were, right? You, you weren't a rabbi who was studied and careful and learning the, the, the Torah and learning all these things and learning all of these truths. You were just a carpenter. So it's not in your abilities to do these things. That's the idea. It's not in his abilities. How is he doing this? This highlights the idea that Jesus came with his own teaching and doctrine, right? Not that he was indoctrinated by someone else and regurgitated it. He came with his teachings. Is this not the carpenter's son? It says, however, in Matthew. Matthew says, it, is it not the carpenter's son? And so this gave rise to um, a huge thing by Peter Jennings. You guys remember Peter Jennings? Back in the day, Peter Jennings was a very highly respected, well-known reporter. And he did a In Search of Jesus. In fact, that was the name of the video he did. In Search of Jesus. Like, let's find the real Jesus. Everybody's always finding the real Jesus. But they never managed to find the real one. They always managed to fabricate a fake one because finding the real one is just doesn't sell videos as much, I guess. At any rate, Peter Jennings does this, The Search for Jesus. It went out in a video form in 2000. And it seemed very factual and very much like it's a journalist just reporting what he found. One of the things he said, though, is that there's these contradictions in the Gospels that can't be reconciled. And one that he highlighted. I mean, these were this was his choice, not mine. He highlights and says, was Jesus the son of the carpenter? Right? Like Mark says. Or was he, or excuse me, like Matthew says, the son of the carpenter. Or like Mark, was he a carpenter? Which one was it? And I remember being a kid. You know, I was, at tw you know, I won't tell you how old I was. But I remember around 2000, you know, I was young. I used to be young. You know, I was young. 
And I remember hearing that and just thinking, wait, why is this confusing to anybody? Like, this is how life works for most of the world, for most of history. Whatever your parents do, you do. It's not that complicated, right? Like, I know nowadays it's different. My dad's a mechanic, and I'm going to be a video game designer. That's the story, you know. My mom's a doctor, and I'm going to be a video game designer. I know. I understand, you know, that's, that's how it is, you know. My, my dad's a lawyer, and I'm going to be a video game designer and make YouTube videos. You know, this is, I realize that, every, you know, occupations shifted. But um, at any rate, yeah, obviously, he's the carpenter and the son of the carpenter. That, that's where he learned it. He didn't go to carpentry school. He learns it from dad. So the second thing they say about him, other than he's a carpenter, is that he's the son of Mary. This is kind of atypical. It's kind of not normal to refer to a Jewish man by, the, by his mother's name, right? The son of Mary. And so there's a couple possibilities as to why. One possibility is that there's like this sort of hint that they think something's wrong with Jesus, his parentage. Maybe they had some idea that Joseph wasn't the real dad. Um, something was illegitimate about Christ. So they're calling him the son of Mary as an insult. Another probably good possibility is that they're simply saying he's the son of Mary because Joseph is dead. That he's already dead at this point. And I do think it's a good case that he's already dead. Remember earlier when Jesus' family went to go and see Jesus and say, hey, you're crazy. Let's get you out of here. It was his, his um, mom and brothers. It wasn't dad. And here they are in the hometown and they don't mention the, they mention everybody in the family except the dad. And they call him son of Mary. So this may just be a reference to, um, to the fact that, he, that Joseph has already passed away somehow. Um, the third reason they give, so this is son of Mary. We know him. We know his family. He's not that, he's not that special. And then finally they say his family is here with us. His family is here with us. And I feel like these, these statements just are to normalize Jesus. Just to normalize Jesus. But there may be another element to it, which is that his family doesn't believe in him. His family doesn't believe in him. In John 7, 5, it tells us that even his brothers did not believe in him. Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. And guess what? They're right there, not believing in him, right there. In front, and they're like, aren't his brothers here? And they're not affirming of him. And um, in Mark three twenty one, the same family tried to, tried to get him to stop. They went to Jesus, traveled to where he was in Capernaum, I believe it was. And they said, you know, in fact, I'll read to you. It says, he's out of his mind. Mark 3.21, this is what they, the family said about him. He's out of his mind. And so they tried to, st- so what do you think happened when they came back? Like, hey, hey, uh, James, Joseph, like, hey guys, I know you went all the way to Capernaum to get Jesus, but he didn't come back with you. Like, what, ha-? you know, the rumors spread. It's a small town. Everybody knows everybody. And everybody knows everybody's business, probably as well. So this um, is something that's interesting because in the study of history, there's something they call the criterion of embarrassment. And the criterion of embarrassment is when you look at an author who's writing something that you're like, if that wasn't true, chances are they would never have made it up because it's embarrassing. And it's not, it's, it's, you consider it like a criteria. Many historians consider it a criteria. Others just go, it's just common sense, guys. Like you don't, you don't admit to things that are embarrassing, right? Like if, if you tell a story about how you peed your pants, it's probably true. It's probably a true story, right? As, as you all know my story. Uh, but, um, but yes, that, that's probably a true story. No one's going to doubt that story because it's so embarrassing and you're, you're not getting anything out of it. And that's kind of the case here. His family thought he was crazy. Like, yeah, that's probably really what happened. You know, this is just the way it is. Um, so this kind of normalizes him and this also gets them to think, we just, 
we just don't think it's possible, Jesus. Okay, we hear stories of your miracles. We hear your teachings. They're even going to see some of his miracles firsthand, and they still don't believe because they already have an idea of Jesus, and they've put him in this box, and they're not going to let him out. That's the, the bottom line. They actually end up ignoring his miracles and his teachings, and this so fits with the Old Testament because this is exactly what they keep doing to the prophets that God sends them. God sends them people to talk to them, and they find reasons to discount them. Sometimes we hear truth, and we hear it from somebody we know really well. We don't listen. And that's the case here. So this rejection seems really odd. And here's where I think there's a connection to America. Okay, they grew up. They knew Jesus. They had this sort of picture of Christ in their head that was actually a distorted image based on their lack of knowledge of Christ. And they wouldn't let that box change. And here's where I think maybe America, a lot of people have grown up with some sense of Christianity. And that version of Christianity they have, it's in this weird little box. And it's not really Christianity, you know. But they won't let it out of that box. And so they, they kind of have like a, a bias against Christianity already. Sadly, I think what we have to do is get people to stop, ask themselves, do I really understand Christ in the first place? And look at it all afresh, right? Look afresh at the gospel of Christ. A good way to do this is to ask somebody, um, rather than telling them the gospel, ask them the gospel. Ask them to tell you. What do you, because do you know the gospel? What, what is it? What do you think this is? Just what, when you hear the word Christian, what do you think that means? Who do you think Jesus is? Let them tell you so you can find out what kind of box is going on. Because if they were to describe Jesus, it would be different than the real Jesus here. Yeah, instead, um, we don't want, they, they wouldn't want Jesus, but they would have accepted probably some, some total weirdo they'd never seen before came and did the same things. They would totally have accepted that guy, but not the Jesus that they know. And that is sadly the reality even with American Christianity. For, for those who are raised in it, who are defecting or whatever you want to call it, they will accept the weirdest beliefs. I remember having a long conversation with somebody and I gave him all this evidence for Christianity, all this apologetics. And I mean, it was a long talk. And, he, and at the end of it all, he just says, Mike, I just, I feel like there's just not enough evidence. There's just not enough evidence. And I said, well, and I thought I'll just take a new angle. What do you believe? What do you believe with, you know, with your heart? What do you think is true? Because you have a high standard of evidence. And he says, he goes, I think reincarnation. I think we just get reincarnated. We die and we get reincarnated. And I said, okay, you have this high standard of evidence. What evidence do you have for reincarnation? And he went, I never thought about that. So wait, he wants more and more and more evidence for Christianity, but zero evidence required for reincarnation. And this is evidence to me of a heart issue. There's a heart issue going on here. And this is the case. It's like Christianity, I'm going to find a list of reasons to not have that thing I don't want. But I will embrace over here something else that just, I feel like it suits me better. And it does suit us better because it ends up feeding our live the way I want to live, do what I want to do kind of mentality with life. But we need to take a second look at Jesus Christ. Okay, we get some more information from the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke in Luke chapter 4. You guys can flip there if you'd like. Um, we're going to read a section of this. And in Luke, Jesus goes to Nazareth, and, he, and we, we find out what he taught, what he actually said, at least some of the things he said when he was in the synagogue. Turns out he did the reading, and he did an address. Luke did. And it's Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16. It says, And he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. So it was his custom. Again, he would go to the synagogue and take advantage of that place to teach. 
And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord, and here we're quoting Isaiah, or as I say, we're quoting Jesus, who's quoting Isaiah. Jesus is reading Isaiah. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And let me, I'll give you guys the spoiler. He's quoting something that's about himself. Okay, so read this as though it, it's Jesus talking about himself. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? And so the same kind of process where they're like, wow, that was really impressive. But wait, but it's it's Jesus, right? This doesn't work for me. Um, What he read, this is so neat. What he read was from Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2. But Jesus, he stopped the reading before the sentence in the Hebrew actually ends. He stopped the reading early. The text read just like what you, what you read there, what you thought it said, right? The Spirit of the Lord's upon me. He's anointed me. And he gives a list. Preach the gospel of the poor. Proclaim release, release to the captives. Recovery sight to the blind. To set free those who are oppressed. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he stops and closes the book. He stops at proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. The next phrase in Isaiah is, and the day of the vengeance of our God. Now, some say, and this is, I've heard this from some, from a source, and a liberal source, and they say, this is where Jesus is closing the book on vengeance. There will be no vengeance because Jesus, he stopped it like he's just going to end. No, this is the difference between the first and second coming of Christ because he's going to come back with vengeance, as he said, makes extremely clear in his teachings in the Gospels. I'm going to return to judge. But his first coming is just all grace. It's I've come. I'm not here to judge you. I'm here to save you. I'll come back later and judge. <laughs> like it's, it's not never going to happen. It's just not going to happen right then. So then he says, I fulfilled this. And I would say the point here is Jesus didn't just give us moral help, like help to become a better person. Let me help you be a better person. He came to set us free from our captivity to sin, to Satan, to the bondage of our lives, to set us free from these things and proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Where God's like, because of Christ, now's the time to come. You, just as you are, you can come. You can, you can be forgiven. You'll be received. You'll be embraced by my love. I will change your life forever, transform you from the inside out. You will know grace. You will know salvation. And you will know the holiness of God. And then he's like, and the day of vengeance, that's on pause. It's just a really long comma is what it is, actually. So he says he's fulfilled it. Um, then he goes on, and this is, now you'll see why at Nazareth they, they start having even more trouble with him. In verse 23 of Luke chapter 4, we keep reading. He gives them some illustrations, some stories. And story time with Jesus here is going to really make them mad. I'll explain why in a minute. It says, And he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, No prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. Here's the story time. Many widows in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet, Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, 
but only Naaman, the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove out, drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. Why are they so mad? He's like, Elijah helped a widow. Elisha helped a leper. Kill him! You know, like, why are they so mad? It's because the widow is one among many widows. And the many widows in Israel didn't get helped. But the one that did get helped, she was what? A Gentile. And there were many lepers in Israel. And the leper that got helped, it wasn't any of them. It was a leper, Naaman, who was a Gentile. Jesus says, you're rejecting me? Well, keep this in mind. That there were plenty of people that could have received help from these two messengers of God. But only Gentiles, these two Gentiles, got help. And so the implication is that the groundwork is being laid for the idea that if the Jews reject the Messiah, the help will go to the Gentiles. That's the groundwork that's being laid. So they flip out and they want to kill him. Of course, he just quoted scripture is what he did. Really interesting, deep stuff. Like if you read it, you're like, they kind of overreacted to story time with Jesus there, but they're reacting to to the implications of what he's saying. So back to Mark chapter 6, verse 4. That's what he taught there. And then they respond to him and they're finding ways to discount him, possibly partially because of his teaching. You know, finding, you know, I don't like what you say. I'm going to find a reason to not like you. (laughs) That's the idea. And in verse 4, Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And Jesus seems to attribute this to like a common human tendency that those who we know the most, we believe in the least. Um, That almost seems to be the case. You know, the modern term is familiarity breeds contempt. That's what we say. And this is actually a known proverb in the days of Jesus. It wasn't a prophet's not without honor. He changed it and put the word prophet in there. But it was, it was like a, a wise man or a, a teacher. You know, someone's not without honor except amongst his own people, basically. It's like you have to, you want to be respected, you got to like leave home. <laughs> Go somewhere else to get it. That's kind of the implication here. But Jesus says a prophet is not without honor. Now, what do you think he's saying about himself? He changed the terminology. He's not just a wise man. You know, he's a messenger of God. He's a messenger of God. And we see what happened to the prophets in general is is ultimately typified and magnified in what happens to Christ. That's why when, he, when they go to kill him, before they kill him, he says to them, fill up the measure of, of guilt. You killed, you killed all of them. Now fill up the measure of your guilt and you're going to kill the son. Um, or was that Stephen in his address? I might be confusing the two speeches. I'll leave it up to you to figure out what I got wrong. Um, um, in verse 4, he says, a prophet's not without honor except in his hometown. And here... I think we have a lot we can focus on here and learn real briefly. Just learn from it. There may be people in your life that are gifted who you just can't give credit to because you know them too well and you know their flaws or you know the mistakes or you know whatever, or you just don't, you don't expect much of people you know. You expect great things from great people you don't know and you expect nothing from great people you know. And the more you know the great people that you think are great people, you know, the more you get to know them, the less you expect of them because now you know them. And this is not, this is not good. And I know I've known pastors who purposely distanced themselves from their congregations because they thought if they got to know them too well, they wouldn't respect them anymore. And I don't think this was because the pastor was like so compromised in his walk that they, because that can be a reality, right? And that's not what I'm talking about. It's true that you may find out this guy's just total hypocrite, right? He's just ungodly to the core. 
and you find out and you rightly lose respect for the person. I get that. But there are some who it seems like there were godly men who just felt like this has happened so many times where people just lost all respect for them just because they hung out or something. And um, it's a human tendency we just want to be aware of. In ministry, I've always tried to be like, here's how much expectation and hope you might have for the people around you. And then I'm just like, I'll just double that. (laughs) Here's how much I might naturally have. I'll just put that times two and just trust in the work of the Holy Spirit in someone's life. Because that's certainly what people did to me. You know, they certainly put a lot of, you know, trust in the the work of God in my life. And I feel like I want to give that out pretty generously to people so that I don't fall into the same trap they fell into that Jesus describes here. So whether it's your kids or parents or family members, if you see them do great things for God and you're shocked, it's because you did this to them. And it's just a lesson to learn. Wow, that guy? That girl? She's doing what for the Lord? Wow, I'm totally shocked. I'm like, wow, you must have thought a lot more lowly of her than what was appropriate. And that's the lesson we're learning. In the end, I think people, um, they want to hear what they want to hear, though. And that's what happens in Nazareth. They don't want to hear what Jesus has to say, so they find a reason to discount him. And then in verse 5, and he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. And he was going around the villages teaching. So verse 5, it seems really clear here, and I don't want to fight against this because I'm worried about abuses, miracle abuses going on in some places. I don't want to fight against that to where I'm fighting against scripture. Verse 5 seems clear. Miracles were available and were limited simply because of unbelief. That's clearly what's saying. He could do no miracle there except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. Okay, he couldn't do it. There's something limiting the work of the miracles. And what is it? Verse 6, he wanted at their unbelief. That was it. It was, it was like they're not believing and that's why they're not receiving. This really is a case of not believing and not receiving. I can't say this doesn't happen. It happens right here. It happens right here. But know this, that this isn't the unbelief of a Christian who loves the Lord, who can't get themselves to believe some, that God's going to do something that for whatever reason they think he might not do. And they're like doing that internal battle. Like, oh, am I believing? This is the unbelief of people who don't believe in Jesus. This is unbelief of unregenerate people who don't believe in Christ at all. Do you understand the difference? The Christian who's like, man, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. That's a whole different battle to the person who's like, I don't believe. And and then God's like, I'm not going to respond. And I'm not here to do the things you don't believe. So I don't want to water this down. Faith is absolutely key. It's key to salvation and it's key to prayer. And we, we do need to intentionally choose to trust God. We do. But then what's wrong with the signs and wonders movement that makes it look like the only reason why everyone isn't healed is because they lack faith. That that is, that is the main reason. Or like, this is kind of how it comes off a lot of times with people. And they'll, many will say it's a lot more nuanced than that. You know, it could be like spiritual powers. It could be this, it could be that. But on your end, it's, it's going to end up being a lack of faith. What's wrong with it? I think the, the, the wrong thing is the assumption that the miracles are always as available as they were at that moment in Nazareth. This is meant to be the manifestation of who Christ is. To tell the story of this amazing Jesus and who he is. And he's going to do these miracles to prove his identity. Believe because of the works, Jesus tells us in John. Because of the works I do. We assume that these are always ready. And I've seen many, many believing saints who were believing God and were yet not healed. There was not a faith issue. There's no faith problem here. They trusted God. And they agonize. 
and they kick themselves and they beat themselves up. Even though they really are trusting God, they're like, but maybe I'm not. I mean, I thought I was trusting God, but I'm not healed, so I must not be. And I say, look, don't overthink this. You had faith. You trusted God. You prayed. It didn't happen. It either wasn't God's will or it's not his will yet. You can still keep praying. You can still keep trusting him, but don't beat yourself up. If you have faith, there's always room to be worried. You don't have the faith you thought you had. And maybe I'm just confused and maybe, you know, and, and this is like not a good way to live your life. Faith is simple. I trust Lord. And even if you're doing, I, I believe, help my unbelief. Apparently that's acceptable to Jesus too. So don't beat yourself up. He even heals under those conditions. So don't beat yourself up. Don't be af- afraid of your unknown doubts. I think I believe, but maybe, maybe I don't really. But like, what if you do this in your marriage? I, I think I love my wife, but what if I don't? I'm just like, whoa, hold your horses there, buddy. This is not going to be good for your marriage. Just love your wife. Like, just, just do it. Just trust her, you know, love her, do that kind of thing. Just have to go for it. Jesus then marvels at their unbelief. That's a really interesting thing we read about here. He marveled at their unbelief. Like, he's like, I'm shocked at your unbelief. What's funny is the world is the opposite today. The world's like, I'm shocked at your belief. I marvel at the belief that you have in God or in Christ or in the Bible. I marvel at it. Jesus flips it completely upside down and he's like, I can't believe you don't believe. This is the marveling that's going on. How could you not believe? You got the mountain of evidence right in front of you. How could you not believe? And I would say this is sometimes the case. Sometimes the case is that the case has been made and people have mountains of reasons to trust in God, to trust in the scriptures, to trust in Christ. And what's amazing is when they still don't trust. And maybe they're digging to find reasons. Oh, well, there's a carpenter's son. And like, find, I'm going to find a list of reasons to discount the, the things that I've, I've seen here. But when I listen to even like, say, these debates between like Christians and atheists, I, I've, I've listened to countless of these debates. I think they're interesting. And, I, and if you actually, if you follow the emotion of the debate, you're going to be doomed in any debate because you're going to be swayed by emotions, which is not wise. But if you can track with the logical arguments, you actually can write them out. Like, what was the argumentation here? What was the argumentation on the other side? Did they rebut this? Did they rebut that? And you track it out. You look at it and you go, wow, there's like this list of good, thoughtful reasons for the existence of God, for the truth of Christianity in particular, whether it's about the resurrection of Christ or if it's about, say, fulfilled prophecy or if it's about the story of the scriptures, the evidence for inspiration of the scriptures, um, testimony in your own life about the work of God in your life. Like If you're like, God changed my life, but I don't know, is God real? I was like, just think about those things for two seconds real quick. And you get these sort of stacked up on top of each other, this cumulative case for the evidence for Christianity. And then you ask the other side, what's your case against this? And what's your case for what you believe? And you often find that it's just so, so thin that I think it's appropriate in many cases to marvel at unbelief. A lot of the time, the, the, the doubts that people are facing, and they're genuinely struggling. Believers, non-believers, genuinely struggling about Christianity, about the truth of it. A lot of times the doubts they're facing, they seem like they're more emotion-based than logic-based. And part of the way you know this is because when you answer the doubt with good reason, I don't care about the reason. I don't care about the answer. In fact, I'll come up with a new doubt, with a new thing for you to unpack and fix. And if you fix that, I don't care about that either. I'll come up with something else. I'll just keep, I can do this all day long. I just keep coming up with stuff. 
But like, what if I said, I don't want to go to the store? Why? I said, because it's violent at the store. They're going to kill me. And like you show me news reports about how safe the store is. I should go now, right? <laughs> like I should go to the store now. And I go, yeah, well, it's too far away. And you're like, oh, no, no, it's just, a, it's, we could walk there. It's right around the block. Well, it's too expensive there. The price is, oh, they're having a great sale. Like if I keep coming up with excuses, you realize there's something else going on here. And sometimes it's just this, this doubt stuff. And Jesus highlights this. The Gospel of Mark highlights this. The Gospels in general highlight this. The intellectual stuff that we think drives us is often just a symptom of the heart stuff that's driving us. Christians and non-Christians. And it has to do with our reaction to God, not evidence. In fact, sometimes we react to evidence the way we react to God. It's, yeah. So, verse 6, um, Jesus goes elsewhere. At the end of verse 6. And he was going around the villages teaching. And I think there's an application here I'll expand on more later in chapter 6 when we get to him sending his, his disciples out. Um, the application is, when people reject you, it's okay to leave. Because there's other people to share with. And that, that can be rough because you feel like it's your responsibility to change people's minds. But it's actually not your responsibility to change anybody's mind. It's your responsibility to share truth. It's each person's responsibility to change their own mind. That's, that's how this works. And when you realize that division of labor, you know, and you go, oh, my job was then I shared truth. And they're, okay, I'm just, I'll move on to someone else. You're rejecting it. I'll move on. That is an appropriate thing to do. Go where you can minister. Minister to where the doors are open, where the opportunity is there. And if it's closed, then you can move on. Um, okay, I want to move other to something totally different, which is the concept, the question of whether or not Mary had other children. I think that this comes up in Mark multiple times, and I wanted to dig into it when we got here. Um, so today seemed like a good day. Did Mary have children? Now, according to uh, Catholicism, the, and I mean Roman Catholic teaching, this is a dogma of the church. There's four Marian dogmas, four teachings about Mary that are said to be something you have to believe. The church is like, you don't have a choice. Like, you have to believe this. It's, it's an essential truth. I'll read. This is their definition of dogma. Dogma is different than doctrine. These are technical terms in Catholicism, right? And they're technical in other places too. But according to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, um, uh, paragraph 88, or is it chapter 88? How do they refer to that? Chapter, anyway. Paragraph, there we go. Paragraph. It says, the church's magisterium, magisterium refers to the, the, the ruling teaching leadership of the church. The church's magisterium exercises the authority it holds from Christ to the fullest extent when it defines dogmas. That is, when it proposes in a form obliging the Christian people to an irrevocable adherence of faith, truths contained in divine revelation, or also when it proposes in a definitive way, truths having a necessary connection with these. So it's either clear from divine revelation or it's somehow connected to that clear divine revelation. But they'll consider revelation, scripture, and tradition. These are in Catholicism. Both these are considered revelation. So there's these four Marian dogmas. There's four things you have to believe about Mary. One of them is perpetual virginity. By that, they mean that she not only was a virgin uh, at the conception of Christ and at the birth of Christ, that she was preserved as a virgin, but also that throughout her entire life, she was always a virgin, ever virgin. That's perpetual virginity of Mary. This is considered so important that the Council of Trent says, like, you're anathema. You're accursed to hell is the traditional understanding of that word if you do not affirm this, if you reject it. But the scripture says Jesus had brothers, so we'll talk about that. Uh, but let me read to you what the um, Catechism of the Catholic Church 
chapter uh, 449, paragraph 449, 499, sorry, says about the perpetual virginity of Mary. So here's the text. The deepening of faith in the virginal motherhood led the church to confess Mary's real and perpetual virginity, even in the act of giving birth to the Son of God made man. In fact, Christ's birth did not diminish his mother's virginal integrity, but sanctified it. And so the liturgy of the church celebrates Mary as um, Iaparthenos, the ever virgin. Ever virgin. So that's the idea. Let's talk about some scripture. I'm going to read a bunch of scriptures because what we read here is that his, his mom's here. His brothers and sisters are here. That's what they said in Mark. And now you would, you know, just casually reading it, you would naturally assume these are real brothers and sisters from Mary. But I'll read some other ones here. In Matthew 13, 55, we hear this. Is not this the carpenter's son? This is at Nazareth as well. Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Notice in this one sentence, the quotes from the crowd, he ta- they talk about his father, Joseph, the carpenter, his mother, Mary, his brothers, his sisters. The context would mean that brothers here is probably referring to blood brothers. This would be the natural reading of the text. In John 2.12, after this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. His mother, his brothers, and his disciples. In John 7, 3, Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. Why am I reading these passages? Because you can't think that brothers here refers to a brother in the Lord. Right? It's not that terminology. It's a familiar term. They're, They're familial brothers. We'll talk about are they cousins in a minute. In Acts 1.14, it says these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And again, they're mentioned in connection with the mother of Jesus. Always the mother. The mother and brothers. Mother and brothers. Mother and brothers. We're getting these connected. It seems like they're connected to her. 1 Corinthians 9.5 says, Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? So we have the apostles and the brothers of the Lord. So... They seem to be still being thought of as brothers. Matthew 12, 46. Jesus' mother and brothers were standing outside wanting to speak with him. That's the story. His mom and brothers want to speak with him. And it says, and, um, oh, hold on, sorry. While he was still speaking to, uh, to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak with him. Someone said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. Now, normal use of language, you say mother and brothers. Like, if they just said your brothers, maybe it means it in some broader sense. Maybe it could refer to cousins in some generic, you know, old, old school sense. But it's mother and brothers, mother and brothers. But Jesus answered the one uh, who was telling him and said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, and listen carefully to this, behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my father who's in heaven, he is my mother or he is my brother and sister and mother. He's my brother and sister and mother. And so this is these are familial terms that are about like one tight-knit little family. That's the idea that seems to be the case. Now there's a response to this. According to Catholic teaching, uh, some Catholics will say these were step-siblings from Joseph's prior marriage. Joseph had a marriage before, so they were really his brothers, but by marriage, and it wasn't through Mary. And so... That, that was the idea. Now, this is not official Catholic teaching. This is just what I've heard some Catholics say. This is not the official teaching. This is what you call ad hoc. Have you guys heard the term ad hoc? Ad hoc means it's for this. Like, I just made this up on the spot is the idea. 
the fancy phrase is it's non-evidenced assumptions. I declare these are stepbrothers. Do I have evidence they're stepbrothers? No, that just works with my teaching. <laughs> so there's no evidence for it. I just declare it. Another angle that's taken actually in the catechism of the Catholic Church and by other Catholic apologists is that they were cousins. So let me read to you from the catechism for the last time. This is paragraph 500. It says, against this doctrine about the perpetual virginity, against this doctrine, the objection is sometimes sometimes raised that the Bible mentions brothers and sisters of Jesus. The church has always, always understood these passages as not referring to other children of the Virgin Mary. In fact, James and Joseph, brothers of Jesus, are the sons of another Mary, a disciple of Christ, whom St. Matthew significantly calls the other Mary. They are close relations of Jesus, according to an Old Testament expression. So brother means cousin. And Mary had a relative named Mary who had sons, and they're called the brothers of Jesus. And they seem to go with Mary a lot to talk to Jesus, or they're associated with her for some reason. But this makes the Bible read in really strange ways. Let me give you some examples. They say, Jesus, your mother and brothers are outside. It becomes, Jesus, your mother and cousins are outside and and they're traveling and we isn't this jesus we got his son of the carpenter his mom's here aren't those his cousins it just seems a little strange it just seems a little weak to me and when scripture says even his brothers did not believe him well they're now his cousins it has less force it has less power behind it it seems now the word itself in the greek is adelphos that's what's always used to refer to his brothers adelphos or adelphe for the women for the sisters there's a different word for more generic, like cousin type family relative, and that is syngenes. Now that word is not used. It's adelphos. It's the word for, that's typically used for brother. And in Luke 14, 12, we get in the gospels, adelphos and syngenes used together. And why is this important? Because if the Bible meant cousins by adelphos, why do I read it this way here in Luke 14, 12? It says, and he also went on to say, to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers, Adelphos, or your relatives, Sunganes. Brothers and relatives are seen as two different things here. Luke is not using the word Adelphos to refer to cousins. He's using it to refer to blood brothers. So brothers or relatives or rich neighbors, otherwise they may also invite you and return your payment. In Luke 21, 16, Jesus says, but you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, Adelphos, and relatives, Sungenes. Okay, well, brothers and relatives are seen as two different categories here. Okay, so why don't they just use Sungenes? Why isn't it Mary and Jesus is Sungenes? It's instead of Adelphos. In Luke 136, we read that Luke does use Sungenes to talk about a cousin. When um, Mary goes to visit her cousin, Elizabeth, they don't use Adelphi to refer to just like kind of a generic family relative, but rather Sungenes. Jesus' brothers are never called this. They're always called Adelphi. So it seems that Luke in particular, who uses both terms, uses them carefully. So this really gives us the impression that Adelphos means brother in the normal sense. And otherwise you're saying Luke is sloppy. He uses it for cousin in multiple places, uses Sungenes, but he always uses Adelphos for the brothers. Maybe Luke's just sloppy. Maybe he's not careful with his Greek. But listen to how careful he is, Luke is, about distinguishing family relations. Because Luke is the one, in Luke 3.23, who says that Jesus was supposed, was as was supposed, the son of Joseph. They thought he was the son of Joseph. Luke's like, I just want to be careful so you all know. Like, he was 
sometimes we call him the son of Joseph. He was supposed to be the biological son of Joseph, but he wants to make clear that he's not. Why didn't he do that with the brothers? It seems to be Luke's style. In fact, there isn't a single place in the New Testament where Adelphos is clearly used to refer to cousins anywhere in the whole New Testament. Sometimes it refers to Christian brothers, but that's clearly not what's happening here in this passage is about Jesus' brothers, but not cousins. There's another passage I'll bring up. It's Matthew 1, Matthew 1, where it says in verse 24 and 25, Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Until. And the implication of until is that it was temporary until she gave birth to the son and then they had normal marriage relations, which is appropriate. In 1 Corinthians, we learn that husbands and wives aren't to keep themselves from one another. Um, but the implication is that Mary and Joseph did do that for some reason. I know there's a whole debate on that word until. I'm not going to try to get into that with the Greeks. Someone can chase that down. I don't agree with, obviously, I don't agree with the, the, the Catholic side on that. Lastly, um, they also want to say, according to Catholic teaching, that in Matthew, we read about this other Mary who was there when Christ was crucified, and she's the mother of Joseph and James, two boys named Joseph and James. These are both very common names. In fact, Mary is extremely common as a female name. You know, if, if you had 10 friends, three of them would be made, named Mary back then. It's just a really super common name. Um, well, James and Joseph are also very common names. So we don't see the connection there. I think it just ends up ignoring the text. And this is, this is where we come to the discussion, ultimately, like a lot of discussions between Protestants and Catholics are, you know, are going to end, which is, do I go with the church tradition or do I go with what the scripture seems to teach here? And it seems to teach Jesus had brothers. If I didn't have a problem with it, I would just accept it as is. And that's where we get the whole sola scriptura thing. Let the Bible be the final full authority arbiting to us what we should believe. So there's our sidetrack on the perpetual virginity of Mary and the brothers of Jesus. Um, in closing, uh, I just want to say this about Mark 6 in general. Um, just to take a look around and ask yourself if you're taking things for granted in your life. People for granted, perhaps. Maybe the gifts that God's given you or given other people in your life because they just totally took Christ for granted. And he was right there and he was working. In fact, bringing the ultimate revival right to their doorstep and they just dismissed it because it wasn't what they expected or what they wanted or whatever. And I just want to be humble enough to be open to what God might be doing in my life through others around me. Um, like when you come to a study, what if you come to a study and you're wanting to just learn the word, but instead you get challenged to like a radical personal revival. Are you, are you open to that? Are you ready for that? Or is it more like, no, 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 I'm kind of like cool. Like I'm cruising. I just, I'm going to cruise at this exact speed forever. Okay. <laughs> just give me this. But yet don't you feel that need to like grow more. And I just want us to be humble and open to those things because there may be some radical change that God wants you to have in your life. And I don't want us to be paranoid about it. I want us to be open to it. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity and the teaching uh, of scripture. We thank you for this wonderful passage. Jesus, we pray that we could be those who are humble and who come to you and ask, what do you want, Lord, not what do we want from you? Jesus, you did call us to radical, radical Christianity, to lose our lives for your sake, to seek first your kingdom above all else, to die to ourselves daily, take up our cross and follow you. You called us to set first your kingdom um, as the top priority in our hearts and lives, Lord, this is a radical calling and we don't want to take that for granted. We don't want to water that down. You called us to serious faith and trust. We want to embrace all those things. 
And so we pray for the continued work of your Holy Spirit in our lives to conform us to the image of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.